Welcome to the Pulse Podcast, personal conversations about life, leadership, and legacy with inspiring founders, entrepreneurs, and leaders of industry. I am R. Adam Smith, founder of Wisdom Board. I am pleased to host this podcast episode. Wisdom Board is a fast-growing digital leadership platform powered by curated content, blue chip services, valuable human capital resources, and an expansive expert network. Wisdom Board is dedicated to empowering excellence for private companies at the board level. I'm here today with Ron Diamond, a very dear friend and one of the leaders in the expanding uh, family office universe, uh, mostly in Chicago. Um, Ron is a chair of one of the chapters of the illustrious Tiger 21 and has consulted uh, many family offices previously from the hedge fund industry way back uh, from the infamous Drexel Burnham. Um, there'll be a, a couple smiles in the world when they hear that and uh, recently very active with Stanford. Ron, it's great to have you on the Wisdom Board Pulse today. Great to be here. Thank you for having me. You're welcome. Um, so let's say, uh, you know, there's you're super busy now expanding different audiences and networks around the family office world. And, and your, your company is called Family Office World. And also he has a Family Office World podcast, which is wonderful around educating uh, the mission of empowering family offices. And that really resonates well with, with me. Uh, but kind of... Walk us back to your career and and, uh, and and give our listeners a bit of color from the old Bear Stearns and Drexel days and then and then kind of fast forward us to today. Well, it was a fascinating start to my career. So I graduated Northwestern and I got a job at Drexel. So I figured this is where I'll be for the next 45 years, because back in the day around 1990, Drexel was, you know, far and away the most profitable firm on Wall Street and they were just very, very creative and very innovative. Two years into it, Drexel imploded and went bankrupt. And from that, I was in the, you know, I was 24 years old and I was um, in the room with a bunch of 60 and 70 year old people when Fred Joseph announced they're going bankrupt. I, did, I just lost a good job. I didn't have any stock options, but I'm watching these people in their 60s and 70s and they're literally weak. I mean, they're crying. They, 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 many of them had lost everything. And my takeaway from that was very simple and something that I've kept with me is that I will always be, always be loyal to people, but I will never be loyal to a company because if Drexel can go under, anybody can go under. And Drexel talked a lot about how they weren't going to go under. So fast forward, I started a hedge fund in 19, right around 1990, ran the fund for about 10 years, about $250 million. Um, sold it, took a year off, and then started investing. And I started this company, Diamond Wealth. Okay. Well, that sounds similar to some stories I've heard uh, of, of Drexel. An uh, old friend of mine, uh, Tori Kaim, loved working there. And I met Fred Joseph before he passed when he was building, uh, I guess, the beginning of a SPAC business, really, at Morgan Joseph back years ago. It was, it was, it was an incredible, incredible firm with yeah. phenomenal culture. Um, but I miss it. But there's a lot of us that, that still stay together. So there's there's quite a tight alum network, um, which I, I stay in touch with many people. Yeah, I've seen that over the years. Actually, Drexel uh, colleagues are, are quite are quite tight, um, and uh, I sense that also um, when I started at the similar time at Solomon Brothers, and that that diaspora is still similarly robust and 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 sticks together, which is great. Um, and of course, Bear Stearns is such a 
such an illustrious name um, and, and a lot of friends from there. That was, uh, I think, probably defined the word meritocracy, but with a little more a little more edge on it, probably. That's a great background. And and um, and then how did you think about um, the the new platform? You've certainly advised many companies. I know you're working with Ted and Monroe and Tiger Twenty One. There's lots of lots of uh, amazing uh, relationships there, but. Looks like around 2007, almost um, almost 15 years ago, you began Diamond Wealth. So, kind of walk us through Diamond Wealth back then. Um, what did you start, and then where is it today? Sure. Well, Diamond Wealth, when I started, it wasn't really a company. Basically, the my thought process was that um, when I sold my company, um, I started investing. And in the 90s, they didn't call them family offices. They called them rich people. So I had a bunch of rich people who were now family offices. And my thought process was if I could put in a million or two into a deal, um, you know, that may be a lot for an individual, but that's nothing on a cap table. So my whole thought process was get these family offices. If I can bring in 98 million of their money and one or two of mine, um, I'll get better deal flow and execution. I don't, I didn't charge anything. So but I wasn't doing it for altruistic purposes. I was doing it so I can be the first call rather than the 20th call. And in the private market, that's a difference between making money and not. So by doing that, um, it was very valuable for me. I benefited because I'm now the first call. Um, and my clients benefited because um, you know I didn't charge them anything and I acted as a funnel. And we invest in the private market, so private equity, venture capital, real estate, credit, I think it's extremely difficult right now to create alpha in the public markets. I just have my money in ETFs. I think it's very hard. But in the private markets, there is alpha to be created. And that's basically what we do. And then the company kind of morphed because what happened was um, I was asked to speak at many of these conferences. And what I realized was that this whole family office world, and remember, 70% of family offices that are in existence today started after 2000. So this is a new phenomenon. But I realized right. these family offices were very inefficient in general, very fragmented and very siloed and unprofessional in general. Forget the Pritzkers, the Crowns, the Dells. They've institutionalized it. They compete directly with Apollo and Blackstone. But most of them can't. So what I, what I realized was there's a void in the market. And my thesis is very simple. I believe that as private equity and venture capital disrupted the public markets in the early 80s, because it was a better model, you couldn't run a company reporting to a guy like me every 90 days because you're just managing earnings. So the public model, company model was a flawed model and the venture and private equity model, 2%, 20%, 2%, I'll just, to cover my overhead, 20%, I only make money if you make money, that's a better model. The problem is they bastardized the business. And these venture capital firms, it became an AUM game. And the venture capital firms became large, massive. And private equity firms became massive. And they realized that 2% became an annuity and they were making a lot of money on the 2%. So there was a, and they were focusing more on that than on just focusing on the deals. So I, I think there was an inherent conflict of interest because these funds became too big. So what my belief is, and what I'm starting now at Stanford, so at Stanford University, I teach there, I'm on the board there, and we're going to be creating a uh, family office center at Stanford. Right. And the goal is pretty simple. We're trying to create an ecosystem where family offices can become more professional, less siloed, more efficient, and network in a way without any, any service providers and in a safe environment. Sure. 
So the goal of my, my thought process was that as private equity and venture capital disrupted the public markets, I do believe that family offices are starting. They'll never replace private equity or venture because they're massive industries, but they're starting to disrupt private equity and venture. And as more and more people learn about the value of partnering with patient capital, that's going to continue. So that's what we're trying to create at Stanford. Circle Peak in 2002 um, as an independent sponsor. We had over 10 family offices, part of about a billion um, in total capital. We had uh, finally finished uh, setting up and managing 14 SPVs. So we've had, we have had numerous families in our, in our deals, uh, Kilvest and some others, as you know, uh, Magnetar from Chicago. But uh, I, I think it continues to evolve. And um, for me, uh, it's, it's, was, fascinating to watch this SPAC um, phenomenon going on because that really took a lot of attention away from what's going on still under underground uh, with private capital. Uh, it's very distracting. And of course they work and, and some of them will go up and some of them will go down. Um, but uh, maybe comment on some of your conversations with the larger family offices recently in terms of the concept of a SPAC or, you know, blank, blank check as people referring to it the last couple of years. And maybe, um, you know, what type of, what type of allocations into private, private companies um, is, are, are getting done and makes sense right now from a single family office, let's say, what are your, what are your thoughts on that? Well, from a macro standpoint, I think there's going to be a lot of carnage in the SPAC industry. The way I see it, a lot of the smart money are doing SPACs, not necessarily investing in SPACs. And that's the way I see it. And I see that, uh, you know, we did a SPAC uh, about 10 years ago and it's complicated and there's just too many SPACs right now. And I think how it's going to play out is they're going to basically um, overpay for a company. And at the end of the day, there will be some very successful SPACs because yeah. um, there are some very shrewd people. But at the end of the day, I would much rather be doing one than investing in one. Yeah, it's a lot of optionality. So. At Tiger 21, you know, there's such a fascinating organization because they've been around creating intimate settings for um, for entrepreneurs and, and investors and families, of course. But as you said, there were a range of different rich people talking in the in the rooms, literally, um, you know, about about their companies and 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 sort of an inter inter um, social group to to coach each other and brainstorm, also look at deals. For anyone who is interested in in joining has the capacity and it should enjoy joining Tiger 21. Um, what's it like today? And, and what is the type of, of person that, that is a good fit and enjoys and benefits from Tiger 21? Well, I absolutely love it. And I'm a bit biased. See, I never did YPO or Vistage when I was younger. So I never did a peer to peer group. And I didn't even know the value. I just thought it was, I don't have time. I'm too busy. But I started um, about two years ago. I chaired, no, I chaired two Tiger 21 groups in Chicago. And I, I, I absolutely love it because basically it's very holistic and look, we're all in this together and you get out in the real world. And I always have the, the, this picture of the, the iceberg where the top 5%, you know, they see, okay, you drive a nice car, you belong to it, you have a nice home, you have a country, whatever it is. Um, but the 95% that goes underneath that there's a lot of hard work. There's a lot of sleepless nights. There were times when it was extraordinarily challenged and it's the 95% of the stuff that we talk about a lot. So I think Tiger is a phenomenal, people think of it as a great way to find deal flow. 
I, I don't even look at it from that standpoint. I look at it through the lens of there's a lot of people, um, you know, it's people in their late 30s all the way up to their 80s. Um, but it's basically lifelong learners, people who want to grow and people who want to share. And I used to think, you know, being vulnerable was a weakness. It's a strength. And that's something that I learned. So for Tiger, for me personally, Tiger has been an extraordinary experience. And I think what Michael Sonnenfeld has created um, is, is just phenomenal. Also in your podcast, you have some wonderful guests, including him, uh, Avi Stein and his uh, people who I think you introduced me to a wonderful, wonderful firm. Um, I listened to the podcast also with Michael uh, Steep, who you're working with. Uh, we can talk about that next. Of course, the, uh, the ever energetic Michael Loeb as well. Um, there's some really good, good guests on, on the podcast. I'm, I'm happy to, to uh, podcast the podcaster today. That's always, it's always fun. You know, there's a quote. I, one of my quotes I keep on thinking about how Bear Stearns changed and how Salem brothers changed in the similar time with uh, before Derek Mon came in, when there was the big crash from uh, good friend days. And then you have Drexel Burnham with what Fred Joseph had to go through and so on. Um, says that we must accept the end of something in order to begin something new. And a lot of us uh, uh, really get emotionally connected to our job or we get emotionally connected to the people we're working with or the company, like you're, like you're saying. Um, I just wrote about this yesterday on LinkedIn, uh, taking a post from um, one of the editors there that was referencing David Galloway's thoughts on education, um, obviously a brilliant man, but he likes to, um, to emphasize that, you know, work is really more work. It's not as much passion. So I just posted a poll and, and we're running, we're going to hit hundred, 200 inputs on, on that topic of passion, um, how passion and work go together. And I think it's really different for everyone, but, but I don't necessarily agree with Galloway's more dogmatic approach to say that, you know, it's not safe to follow your passion in your work. Um, you have to keep them separate. I don't know what you think, but I don't think so. And I wrote about it and we'll see what people think. Uh, yeah, but... I, I, I don't buy that. I, I think that, look, it, it, you have to be practical too. I'm not going to, I'm five, four. I'm not going to be a professional basketball player. And I was passionate about it. So you have to be realistic. But having said that, there are things like, I don't consider what I do work. I mean, I love what I do. So, you know, am I working? Am I working right now? I don't know. I, I'm enjoying the podcast. Um, am I working when I speak in front of a family office conference? I don't know. Am I working when I'm running a Tiger 21 meeting? Some people would say yes, but it's very fluid. And I think in the world we live in today, um, it used to be, I think, where it was separate. You know, you work from nine to five. You worked until you're 65, then you retired and everything was separate. Now everything's fluid. And as long as you're doing what you're, again, you don't have to be passionate about it as far as, like a musician might be passionate about doing music, but as long as you believe in what you're doing, um, it'll see, it'll show through. And at the end of the day, life is very short. My dad died, I'm 57, my dad died at 57. And I'm very cognizant of that. So you might as well like what you do. And if you do like what you do, you're gonna probably do a hell of a lot better. Well, good, then I will look for your addition to the top rank of my passion survey on my LinkedIn that that'll be one of your, one of your pings. Um, and, uh, you, you're, you're looking good at 57, by the way. So that's, that's good. seems like some of the, um, that, that, uh, more accessible, um, 
and personalized conversations that go on within the Tiger 21 or the YPO or the peer groups. Uh, but Tiger One's pretty, pretty unique in that sense. Um, there's others with the Perot's and Aspen and out, out West, but uh, Tiger 21 is really the the pinnacle of organizational um, groupings of smart people in a room and talk about things that are private. Um, seems like you are taking some of that experience along with the more the more corporatized, disruptive, dogmatic uh, background that we we had in investment banking, and that typically is standard within an investment banking context. It seems like you're taking some of that experience into the way you consult with family offices. You understand them in terms of emotional intelligence. That's important because they're very quirky, enigmatic people, uh, impatient, rich, successful, uh, very different, very very personalized, a um, lot of lot of personality. Seems like you're taking some of that learning um, into the mentoring at Stanford, your guest lecture. Talk about lastly here, how are you, how did you connect with Stanford for the more innovative side of their of their programs, in particular the Global Project Center and disruptive technology? What are your what's in your mind there in terms of disruptive technology? Is it something of your personal interest or is it something that you want to bridge that into the family office environment to bring innovation uh, to them as well? Well, you know, because of my world is family offices, and it's interesting, um, you know, everyone hears and reads and thinks and wants to be a family office, but the model doesn't work. I mean, only 25% of family offices make it to the second generation, 10 make it to the third, and five make it to the fourth. So the whole model doesn't work. So I'm trying to change that. And a lot of it has to do with governance. A lot of it has to do with things like um, succession plan, um, philanthropy, the soft stuff. And um, what I'm doing at Stanford is... I do believe that the family offices are there. Look, they made their money selling Beanie Babies or Gas Jeans or Giorgio Perfume or a chain of gas stations or whatever it was. And they were brilliant at that. But it's a different skill set to do that than to take a billion, grow it to two, not spoil the shit out of the kids, do some estate planning and wealth transfer and philanthropy and grow the asset base. So you've got close to $10 trillion in capital in, and again, I'm generalizing, but in general, in inefficient hands. Um, there are some extraordinarily efficient uh, family offices, Pritzker's, um, Dell's, Bloomberg's, et cetera, but most of them are inefficient. And um, what, I what I see is they, um, a lot of them right recently were trying to, everyone right now in the family office world is trying to do direct deal. And the problem is, in my opinion, um, most of these family offices don't have the staffing, the, the people to do direct deals. The problem is that every deal they did post-crash, pre-pandemic went up because every deal went up. If you're investing in private equity, venture capital, real estate, it went up. And I think while that's good that they made money, it's actually bad long-term because people don't realize. And as we head into a recession, whenever that happens, it's a lot more complicated to do that. And private equity guys are paid a lot of money for a reason. You can't just be the CFO of a, of a company. And then all of a sudden, because you're the numbers guy, you're now picking which companies you're going to invest in private equity. So there's a huge mismatch. And then you combine that with the fact you've got $65 trillion coming downstream over the next 10 years. It's the largest transfer of wealth ever. Right. So this is going to get bigger and bigger. My concern in why I'm very involved in philanthropy and, and impact investing and things like that is that the disparity, the income gap is getting wider and wider. And that's a very bad thing from a societal standpoint, because without a sustainable middle class, it's very hard to make things work 
efficiently. Yeah, we, and that's one of my concerns. That's good. We should talk more because I'm, I'm, I've begun a, um, a social and economic policy nonprofit around more balanced capitalism. So we can talk about that as well. Um, very, very passionate about that. But also I, I have to be plugged into economics because of my name. It just was, wouldn't make sense if I, <laughs> I didn't know something uh, about economics. But uh, I think... Uh, I think that's a great analogy to the reality of, of the world. Some of it is more invisible to, to a lot of people out there. What, what actually goes on within a family office? What do they care about? How are they deploying their wealth? It's really invisible except for their bankers and accountants and some, some minor friends. But I like that you're, um, you're, you're also embracing impact investing um, and, and you know, supporting that and probably educating. And maybe Stanford, you guys can bridge um, you have your conference coming up and, and, you know, maybe one thing you, that would be valuable for them is, is to bridge some of that intellectual capital at Stanford, right. Around ESG into the family office. Well, that's world. exactly, yeah, that's, we're actually doing that. And, yeah. um, one of the things that so that I'm very passionate about is, you know, I'm kind of, I look at myself as kind of the intersection of prosperity and purpose. Right. Mm -hmm. And I think that, you know, my dad died of prostate cancer at 57, which is how old I am. And when Michael Milken went to jail, he developed prostate cancer. And when he got out, he did more for the cure of prostate cancer than anybody. He built it like a venture capital firm. So because of Michael Milken, you and I, if we live long enough, will die with prostate cancer, but not of prostate cancer. And I believe that you can't run a philanthropy or a charity exactly like a business but you could run it more like a business. So yeah. I love what Milken did. I love what Bill Gates did with the vaccines. I love what a lot of these entrepreneurs are doing. So my ultimate goal is to be able to take these brilliant business minds who've created a massive amount of wealth and use that skill set for to basically change some of the big world problems that we're facing. So that's really my passion. That's what drives me. That's great. Well, it's not work when you're passionate having fun, right? So it's good. Which I answered your question about passion. <laughs> Maybe we regroup and do a series on something around Stanford or ESG or passion. It's great to have you today. We're both so busy. It was, it was uh, uh, terrific to, to connect. And thank you again for your time today. Really enjoyed uh, hearing about the new family office platform and the Stanford platform and your passion around impact investing as well. Always great to be here. You're doing a great job. Thank you for having me. Thank you. Pulse is a digital collection of personal conversations with respected private company experts. Pulse listeners enjoy enlightening lessons, wisdom, and journeys of interesting people. Pulse is a production of Wisdom Board, a trusted leadership brand dedicated to empowering private companies to achieve excellence in the boardroom. Wisdom Board lives on LinkedIn and online at wisdomboard.co. Please subscribe to our podcast, available on all major channels, including Apple, Google, and Spotify. I am R. Adam Smith, founder of Wisdom Board. Thank you for listening to the Wisdom Board Pulse podcast.